News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, Daily Beast editor and Daily News columnist. Here, as always, with Fordham professor and a million other things, Christina Greer. Hello. Hello, Harry. Hey. Later in the episode, you'll hear from our producer, Alex Brooklyn, speaking with Gothamist reporter Jake Offenarts. But right now, we are joined again by the uh, great Sally Goldenberg, the uh, Politico New York City Hall Bureau Chief. Uh, Sally, thanks for stealing the time. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, I can't resist the pun when Harry met Sally. I just got to get it out of my system. Here we are. Okay, let's start. And with that, with that, Sally, you've had two real banger pieces people should stop and read in the last few days. First off, headlines, amid negotiations with labor unions, de Blasio moves closer to layoffs, and he's asking just about every department for a specific memo with specific layoffs, except, of course, the NYPD. And then a second piece, which I'm hoping you can take readers through. I can't do it full justice, but I felt like in this weird primary season with delayed results and, you know, the budget going off a $9 billion cliff with maybe another cliff to come. People have been very late catching up to this, but the story was called, Can the Movement Behind AOC Conquer New York City? And sort of looks at how far the left has come in these last couple cycles and what could happen in the mayoral election. So really, the big question here is, can the movement behind AOC conquer New York City this year or come 2021? What do you say? So I think it's a really interesting time to be asking this question because prior to COVID, I think that the movement left in New York City, which started, you know, long before AOC, the Working Families Party really seized a bunch of seats from incumbents in 2009. They defeated county-backed incumbents. You know, people forget that now. They were behind Bill de Blasio as public advocate. They were behind John Lewis, city comptroller. So the leftward movement, which also then peaked again with Occupy Wall Street, the formation of the Progressive Caucus in the city council, it was all brewing before AOC's breakout win. And of course, she brings with her a unique amount of star power that a lot of these other people don't have. But the seeds of the movement had long been planted. She sort of opened the door to it to being even further to the left and embracing the socialist label that up until that, you know, hadn't really been embraced in mainstream politics. All that to say, I think before COVID, there was a pretty steady leftward path for somebody seeking the Democratic nomination to be New York City mayor. It's why you saw Council Speaker Corey Johnson say, I won't take real estate contributions. It's why you saw City Comptroller Scott Stringer, who was always seen as a sort of inside establishment Democrat endorsed Tiffany Caban in the Queens District Attorney's race, which was a kind of radical endorsement for someone like Scott Stringer to make. So everybody was sort of gearing up in this leftward direction, or almost everybody, and then COVID happened. And the management of COVID in New York and throughout the country has been, by most accounts, pretty dismal. And in New York, it's been marked by this endless fight between Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. Everyone's sick of it. Everyone's turned off by it. And as a result, I think there are more and more New Yorkers looking for somebody who can kind of steer the ship in a different direction, focus on the nuts and bolts of governance, manage the city out of a crisis. And that is a different message than 
police reform and criminal justice reform. It may not be a different administration or a different type of governance, but it's a different campaign message. So it's a real open question. So Sally, you kind of focused on COVID fallout and this kind of leftward leaning wind, I guess, that we've seen. But how much do you think I don't know if it's like a real uptick in violence or at least the framing of an uptick in violence will affect how a candidate is going to have to frame their new campaign and then adding in ranked choice voting. Because it seems like, you know, New York has a lot of people who are liberal to a point, right? And they like things in theory and they like groups of color over there, but not necessarily in their own neighborhood and in their own schools with their children. That is when kids used to be able to go to school because right had a functioning democracy. So we don't know what next summer will look like, but adding in this kind of uptick or at least the framing and the fear framing of this uptick, how does that affect the candidates for 2021 and how they communicate the economics, the healthcare, and also they can't divorce themselves from this idea of safety as well? Right. And I would put that in the same category as managing the city out of the COVID crisis and possibly higher in importance to people if there's crime in their neighborhood. I think all of that points to somebody who prioritizes or gives the appearance of prioritizing governance over ideology, management over values. So whether it is an uptick in crime or financial fallout from COVID, I think people who are more concerned about that will be looking for that same type of candidate who's like, I'm a Democrat, but I'm really here to fix the city before I'm here to talk about the ideals of criminal justice reform. Do you see any of the newly elected legislators and or any of the mayoral candidates really articulating a new path forward for New York that has citywide appeal at this point, just given the sort of multiple crises we're suddenly struggling with? No, I mean, I think there's a real... You know, we've we've talked about it. It's been written about a number of times. There's a real lack of vision in terms of a new direction for New York. And what many would say is the tragedy of de Blasio's mayoralty, among many other things, is that in good times with a good economy and a huge workforce and a huge budget and political capital, he wasn't able to or chose not to capitalize on all of that good stuff to see New York City in a different direction. You know, he grew some existing programs and to the people who benefited from those programs, that is enough. But for people who look at New York as a beacon of greatness and innovation, he did very, very little of that. It's hard to do that now in this race. I haven't heard it from the candidates and it's very early, but I would also argue that when people are worried about unemployment and hunger and homelessness and these quality of life and safety issues, it's very hard to sort of speak about grandiose visions. So we've just sort of wasted, it's almost biblical, six years of a strong economy in which the city uh, budget and workforce kept swelling. Now de Blasio is talking about layoffs. We're going to go through most of what he put aside over those six years, it looks like, very quickly. Do you see any chance of outside relief coming in November, or maybe before then, from the financial control board that got set up in the 70s, you know, the idea the city could get lending authority, or are we just in the circumstance we're in, and we'll find out over the rest of this year how much bigger the hole gets? You know, I don't know the answer. De Blasio is asking Albany for the authority to borrow, 
he can only borrow right now for long-term capital projects, not for like immediate expense needs. And so he's asked for that authority. Albany said no during its legislative session. He's still trying to increase pressure. I think the threat of layoffs is to some extent a negotiating tactic to both let Albany know he means business and also let the unions know they have to come up with savings. That's been what he's put out there. And they're like, it's really not on us. And he's saying it is. I don't know if Albany will grant him that authority. It's so hard to say. Everything in Albany happens in obscurity. But even if he has the authority to borrow, which would be big, and even if the federal government comes through with stimulus aid, I still don't think that given the direction of the economy, there's going to be enough money to like really do the kind of visionary things that people had wanted de Blasio to do for all these years. I think he's talking about maintaining social services, obviously maintaining a police department of a large size that's very controversial. But I'm not sure that even if he does get that money, you're going to see a completely different New York. I think it's money to do the essentials, which is right now all anyone can focus on and all, you know, all anyone should focus on until those things are taken care of. So Sally, Harry said that, you know, as you wrote, that de Blasio essentially enjoyed six years of a good economy and, you know, worked along. How much of this potential roadblock for de Blasio is about policy and money and how much of it is about personality in the sense that folks in Albany just aren't necessarily eager to work with someone like de Blasio? I think it's both. I mean, he has had a very hard time getting things through Albany. He's staved off some crises that were coming his way and he's gotten some financial relief over the years. But he has a famously bad relationship with the governor as well as with the Senate. And I thought it might be better with Senate Democrats in power. And I'm sure he does have some allies there. But he's just not a friendly space in Albany. And I don't think he's, I mean, it's hard for anyone, right? Cuomo is extremely powerful. And de Blasio is seen as, or any mayor, to be fair, is seen as like so far beneath the governor in the power structure that they're not going to really be able to command an enormous amount of money without the governor's blessing. But it it doesn't help that de Blasio has all of these enemies or all of these bad relationships built up over years. Throwback Thursday to when de Blasio almost went to prison, I think, trying to uh, flip Albany trying to flip the state Senate Democratic with the idea that that was going to put him in the driver's seat. I I don't think it quite turned out that way. It did not work out the way he had hoped. Do we know the uh, Merrill Field at this point? Or are you expecting a lot more surprises and how this could play out like within the Democratic primary? And is there a chance of somebody trying to go an independent route, just given how crowded that field is going to be with the overwhelming voter registration advantage for Democrats? Yeah, I think there's definitely a possibility. The name that hasn't surfaced officially that I hear about here and there is Ray McGuire from City. And I think he's seen by the business community as sort of like their salvation in this race. But I don't know. He hasn't formally gotten in or anything. So I don't know if he'll be running. It wouldn't surprise me if, I mean, Sean Donovan, who worked for Obama and Bloomberg, and is a Democrat, not an independent, and is running. I don't know if he's officially, I think he's officially running, uh, raising money and everything, is sort of also seen by the business community and the sort of permanent government, for lack of a better term, as a plausible candidate for them to get behind. 
but it's going to be hard. You know, it's, it's most likely going to be a mainstay Democrat, I would think, if the race were to happen like right now. And, you know, Chrissy pointed out ranked choice voting. I think Scott Stringer is hoping, I mean, they're all hoping it helps them, right? But I think Scott Stringer's people see a path where if he can become the favorite for a plurality of white liberals and be a solid second choice for the black voting base, which you need to win an election, I mean, that's kind of all you need right there. So I'm not saying somebody outside the Democratic structure couldn't win, but it's a harder path. Yeah, we've talked about ranked choice voting just a bit on the show. And, you know, I'm sure that there'll be some male millionaire who feels the need to jump in just because that's what they wake up and feel like they need to do. Um, But, I mean, I think that ranked choice voting is going to change everything. Do you have the same strong feelings or do you you just think it'll change strategy and not necessarily outcome? No, I think it definitely could change the outcome. You know, we never say anything positive about de Blasio for good reason, but here's one thing I think he did very well. He put together a workable coalition of white liberals and black voters who are loyal to the Democratic Party who vote in large numbers. That's what it takes, right? The white outer borough ethnic voter is almost gone from the Democratic conversation. And so in the past, you needed a message that appealed to those two voting groups. And those are somewhat different messages. And de Blasio was able to do that for a million reasons and other people's failures that he capitalized on, but he was able to do that very successfully. Now, because of ranked choice voting, you can focus on one of those two voting groups and try to be palatable for the other, which changes both how you run for office and the election. If you're sort of the second choice for white liberals, they don't really love you. You can still become mayor. Sally, thank you again for taking the time and talking this through. I have one more question for you, and I think Chrissy does before we close. Right now, it's like a dozen dudes, a half dozen more maybe dudes, and Maya Wiley. So am I wrong that that's a big advantage, particularly in a ranked choice system? And there's lots of other dynamics going on. Like I'm sort of stunned at just how male the field seems to be at this point. Are you stunned? I'm not stunned, but you're right. Um, Maya Wiley, who isn't in the race yet, but all signs point to the fact that she is very likely going to jump in. And I would imagine soon she has to fundraise. She would sort of immediately become a front runner for, many reasons, not the least of which is the historic nature of her candidacy. If she were to win, she'd be the first female mayor. She's black. She's an MSNBC legal analyst. She's a lawyer for de Blasio and other organizations. You know, She was his top lawyer and worked for many other organizations throughout her career. So she has a very storied resume and she would, I think, by virtue of the fact that she would be the first female mayor, would get a lot of attention. And you're right, she's really the only, I mean, there are a few other candidates who are women who are running, who are much lesser known, Lori Sutton, the veterans commissioner, uh, Diane Morales, who ran or runs a nonprofit, FIPS. And you just reported, right? Maybe, maybe Catherine Garcia. Yeah, the city sanitation commissioner, who I call like de Blasio's pinch hitter, because he calls her in times of crisis, no matter what the crisis is, Catherine Garcia has indicated to people that she's interested in running. She feels that she could do a good job running the city. She sort of has already done that under de Blasio. But there is historically a lack of female candidates in New York politics. The city council, I think, is fewer women now than it did a few years ago. It is definitely a big issue in terms of 
a class of politicians that accurately represents New Yorkers. So Sally, before we let you go, and P.S., you're like top 10 favorite New Yorkers of mine, by the way. I keep a list. Most people are focused on November 3rd in the national election. What are you keeping your eye on in the next few months in New York City politics? I mean, I'm kind of focused on the mayor's race, who jumps in, how that shakes out. And also, as Harry already talked about, you know, what kind of financial relief New York City will get that determines, I think, the rest of de Blasio's tenure. It determines projects that he floated that are kind of getting shoved aside, you know, like is Rikers Island really going to close and get rebuilt? Are all these development projects going to happen? Mm -hmm. I don't know. A lot of this rests on funding. So that's a huge question. Mm -hmm. What we get from the state and what we get from the federal government, that's... And then New York City's own tax base. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if we lose the tax base, then, (laughs) I mean, we saw this in the 70s with financial crises, you know, you can't have lost tax revenue and then expect a city to function. So... This is where we are. Thank you, Sally Goldenberg. Hold on, I think Harry has a question before we let you go. <laughs> We're going to say bye like 17 times. Like it's, a, it's like a cocktail party. <laughs> We're just lonely. <laughs> if we can have checkpoints for the coronavirus on the way in, I think we should have the uh, competence remaining. Maybe Catherine Garcia can help to mug the rich on the way out. If need be. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sally, please stay well. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Our producers are telling us we need to have a real goodbye. So we appreciate you, Sally Goldenberg, Politico. Please come back and join us soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So from one ace reporter to another, here is Gothamist Jake Offenhartz, who has been all over the NYPD and protest beat in recent months. He talked with our Alex Lynn. Let's jump right in. Hi. This is Alex Brooklyn from FAQ NYC. I am here, and by here, I mean, you know, virtually here over Zoom with Jake Offenhartz, who works for Gothamist. He has been pumping out some pretty great reporting all throughout the pandemic, and especially during the George Floyd protests. First, Jake, can you tell me how long have you been a reporter in New York? Like, what's your resume? What's my backstory? I started as an intern at Gothamist in early 2017. It was the same week Trump was inaugurated, I remember, and have been doing that since. Born and Um, raised in the blogs. Born and raised in the blogs? Born and raised in the blogs, yeah. That's all all I know. So, One of the reasons I asked you on the show today is because the NYPD, we have been seeing a big kind of turning point in history for the NYPD and and for the citizenry and their relationship with the NYPD. So far this week, you reported on a story and were actually with an activist who surrendered himself after he was asked to come out of his apartment without a warrant. I'll let you get into that story. Also, there's been, you know, a slew of protests and calls to defund the NYPD, but also there's been like cop support protests too. Something got a bit hairy in Marine Park where one woman pushed another young woman during, you know, young versus old or that's what it looked like. So it's getting pretty tense. And and I just wanted to have you on to 
talk to you about the reporting as you have been primarily following this. Can you just tell me what happened this week with the protester and activist part of Warriors of the Garden? Yep, sure. Derek Ingram is the 28-year-old co-founder of this group, Warriors in the Garden, that sprouted up at the beginning of the, the protests after George Floyd was killed. And Ingram was in his Hell's Kitchen apartment when around 7 a.m. police officers started banging on his door. They had dogs with them, he said, and they claimed they had a warrant for his arrest. And he asked to see the warrant and they didn't provide it. Around that time, Ingram started live streaming on Instagram. And Warriors in the Garden has this this pretty visible social media presence. And Ingram was talking into a camera as you could hear police officers banging at his door for close to six hours, actually. And things started to escalate. You saw police officers on a fire escape in the window of an apartment opposite his unit. Dozens of officers in riot gear shut down his street and words in the garden started urging people to come show up outside and show their support. And so it was this this really tense standoff that was kind of a remarkable moment because you were seeing it unfold live on Instagram. There were police helicopters overhead and about 100 protesters were there. And eventually the officers retreated. So they got there around 7 a.m. and they left close to to 1 p.m. And this was all for allegedly yelling through a bullhorn too close to a police officer's ear, correct? Right, right. And that's what we didn't know at the time, but we found out the next day when we got the criminal complaint on Saturday. Yeah, Ingram is, is charged with taking a megaphone and yelling near an officer's ear, giving her temporary hearing damage during a protest in June in Manhattan. It was almost two months ago now. Almost everybody who saw this kind of agreed it was a a massive overreaction from the NYPD, that this attempted raid and hours-long standoff just did not fit the severity of, of this crime in which an officer did suffer temporary hearing loss, according to the NYPD, but there's no video of any like malicious action here. This is going off one officer's word. They tried to charge Ingram with felony assault for this. When he was arraigned on Saturday, the Manhattan District Attorney reduced the charge to third-degree assault, which is a misdemeanor, and they are still prosecuting the case. And you were with them the very next morning when he and his defense attorney surrendered. And I believe it was your video I was watching of him being led into the now barricaded areas around each police precinct. But he surrendered himself and walked in the next morning. So I was around taking photos during the Eric Garner protest, 2014, 2015. And I don't remember, and I was looking back, I was hard-pressed to find such a large public display by the NYPD of the taking of a specific activist. So there was a lot of show of force during the Eric Garner protests during Occupy Wall Street, but I don't remember a a specific activist being so publicly pursued. And to me, that feels very different. Can you speak to that a a bit? Like to you, through your reporting, is this uh, same old hat and I just don't report on it as much anymore or I don't I don't think this is the same old hat and I think the other important context here is this was 
less than two weeks after the NYPD grabbed Nikki Stone, who's an 18-year-old trans activist, off a street, also in Manhattan, and threw her into an unmarked van. This was at the height of the concerns about federal agents possibly coming to New York City. That event attracted like a ton of condemnation and viral scrutiny. Taken together, there's a lot of civil liberties experts and attorneys who are very concerned about this. They say this is basically unprecedented to see. It's not unprecedented to see the NYPD going after specific activists. You know, this is something during the Black Lives Matter inception, really, as you were talking about. Yes, there was a ton of surveillance. They, they were targeting specific activists in a lot of ways. What we've seen in the past few weeks does feel at the very least like a new chapter in this really meaningful and chaotic moment of the last few months where a lot of people are concerned that they are going after activists. They are trying to send a message that if you're publicly associated with this movement, you can get thrown into an unmarked van on the street. You could have officers with dogs show up at your door at 7 a.m. From the activists that I've spoke to, they're concerned in a way that I think they probably weren't last month even. Now, as far as I have observed, this doesn't start with George Floyd. I mean, we were in the middle of a, you know, just going about our global pandemic business. And a bunch of stuff happened that you actually reported on during the, you know, the first months of the COVID-19 crisis. And we saw an NYPD scrutinized for certain handling of enforcement of social distancing, wearing of masks. The NYPD had their own interesting relationship with wearing, not wearing masks during that entire thing. We saw our commissioner, Dermot Shea, speak extremely diplomatically to a progressive city trying to keep the peace when Francisco Garcia had leaned on the neck of someone that he was arresting. And then we saw that start to erode. We saw a young mother in a subway station put to the ground, her child like taken from her for not wearing a mask in the subway. After that, there was some talk about not having police interact or do the mask enforcement. So From the pandemic to George Floyd, can you tell me your experience with the NYPD and what you've seen through your reporting as this pandemic has unfolded into the George Floyd protests and now beyond? Yeah. Doesn't the social distancing enforcement stuff feel like just a million years ago? Yeah, it really does. Yes, there there were those, there were a handful of viral incidents and I'm sure there were many others, but Francisco Garcia was was seen kneeling, if I remember correctly, on a NYCHA groundskeeper while yelling the N-word over social distancing enforcement. And German Shea at the time kind of spoke out. He said, I I don't like that arrest. Garcia was was disciplined. Um, this is a guy who had a, a ton of alleged misconduct incidents. And he also sort of gave this lengthy speech at one of the mayor's press conferences about how it was dangerous to be too critical of the NYPD, that officers were facing death threats and people were taking these viral incidents and trying to like string together a narrative that was unfair to the cops, while also acknowledging that a couple of things he saw were he didn't like, which I, I think looking back now does sort of seem like, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, like the the prelude to what we saw just two weeks later when our city and cities across the country erupted in protest after George Floyd's death. We were talking about precedent earlier. 
if you talk to civil liberties attorneys, they, they say that there is really no precedent for what we saw in terms of protests and the police response in New York City to the George Floyd protest. So even the Black Lives Matter protests after Eric Garner, you still think that this is an unprecedented moment for the NYPD? Yeah, we just we just didn't see the mass arrests that the night after night examples of clashes and in many cases brutality involving NYPD officers. Um, I, I can say that I personally witnessed night after night protesters and some of them were, were certainly antagonizing cops, but in many cases being being chased, attacked, bludgeoned, arrested, thrown to the ground by NYPD officers in a way that that if you talk to people who have been doing this work longer than I have, they just don't have any sort of comparison in the last 50 years in New York City. I think one one evening stands out to me more than any others, which was Mott Haven. There was a protest in the South Bronx where people were walking down a side street and at 7.58, two minutes before the mayor's curfew, they were they were surrounded by police, by cops on one side who held the line, officers charging from behind with their billy clubs out. 250 people were arrested in that instant, according to the Brooklyn DA, including essential workers, including legal observers. There were people from the mayor's office who were sent to monitor the protest who in real time were emailing very close aides to the mayor and saying, you got to get me out of here. This is a bad scene because the cops were not letting them leave. I think that, you know, there will be a long period of reflection and introspection on what happened in those those 10 days, but I can only speak to what I saw and I had never seen anything like that moment. And a lot of the activists I spoke to said that that was in a lot of ways a turning point for them, like a, a radicalizing event, I think. So through all this, just briefly, what's been your experience from the other side? I know that you've been to quite a few Blue Lives Matter demonstrations, protests, whatever they're called. Can you just walk our listeners through a little bit about what that feels like? Like, what does the city feel like right now, both with cops, protesters, the defund, refund issue seems to be getting growing more and more contentious, especially in some South Brooklyn neighborhoods, as we saw, you know, with the Marine Park viral video over the weekend. Right. There does seem to be this kind of ascendant Blue Lives Matter movement that was started after Eric Garner, after the ambush killing of two police officers. But in the last month or so, there's been several events in New York City and in the suburbs and Long Island where people are coming out to what they say is showing their support for law enforcement. They vary. I've passed by the protests in Marine Park where it's like kind of a dozen people outside my grandma's house with American flags, hanging out with cops in a parking lot. I was on Long Island two weekends ago, three weekends ago, for what was billed as the biggest Blue Lives Matter demonstration in the country. And that was that was quite a sight. There was a lot of people who were talking about civil war there. That was kind of a running theme. There was uh, a lot of Trump flags. There was people talking about civil war as far as like the cops were talking about civil war or the cop supporters were talking about yeah, civil war. Yeah, cop supporters. The specific guy, uh, Jonathan Gillum, who was on stage talking about civil war as a ex-Navy SEAL and 
Sean Hannity regular, and he was sort of asking the crowd, like, the Civil War is coming, are you ready? And the crowd was saying, yes, we're ready. And and that crowd did have a lot of NYPD officers. It also had a lot of just people who live out on Long Island and want to show their support for cops. One of the interesting things about that movement, I guess, is if you talk to them, they say that this is unrelated to Black Lives Matter. Like A lot of people, a lot of leaders of this movement say, we support Black Lives Matter. We're not here to fight with Black Lives Matter. We're just here to, in addition, show our support for police. But the, the sort of beating heart of this movement is, from what I can see, clashing with Black Lives Matter counter-protesters. And, and we saw that out on Long Island, and we saw it in, in Bay Ridge and Diker Heights and Bayside. And over and over again, you, you see these rallies of varying size where the moment things get tense and heated, there, there's a lot of people with a lot of anger who want to either take it out on Black Lives Matter protesters or in some cases the reverse, where you see people on the Black Lives Matter side getting the face of pro-law enforcement protesters. And I think that that's also kind of a new thing. I don't think that that was something we were seeing in great numbers in late May or June. That's really in the last few weeks or the last month, I think. So thank you for coming on. Just so we can wrap it up, what are you going to be pursuing and what are you going to be looking at specifically in regard to the NYPD and its relationship with the civilians in New York City going forward? Like, what would you have our listeners keep their eyes on? What narratives do you think we should be following to see how they unfold? I think there's a couple things. I think I think one of them is we, we have seen this uptick in shootings lately. And as I'm sure you guys have talked about, the, the mayor has blamed this on a variety of things from the, the court's not functioning to what his police commissioner says is bail reform. And a lot of those narratives don't really hold up to scrutiny. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this gets explained and how this gets addressed in the next few months. Moving towards protesters, Derek Ingram's arrest was Friday morning. The school's plan came out last week and the mayor spent most of his press conference today talking about that. He really hasn't addressed what happened there. The police commissioner hasn't addressed what happened there. We haven't really gotten a satisfactory answer of why did you send dozens of police officers for a hours-long operation against a prominent activist who allegedly yelled in a cop's ear. And so I, I think I'll be looking for that and just sort of what the mayor plans to do about this real fear among people on the ground, activists and protesters I'm talking to who who say the NYPD is escalating things and also kind of galvanizing protesters. I think that these last few incidents have given the movement even more energy. One of the people I, I talked to was like, who the who the fuck is their PR person that they thought this was a good idea? I can't remember if I could curse on this show or not. But um, Yes, oh. yes, you, you can absolutely curse on it. Thank you. Okay, thanks for having me. I've got to go to uh, my other job. <laughs> nice, your actual job. All right, thank right, you right. so much. F-A-Q. Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer. My co-host, Harry Siegel, I want to give a special thank you to Jake Oppenhart of Gothamist and Sally Goldenberg of Politico. As always, Alex Brooklyn is our executive producer. And today's episode was cut and mixed by Adam Kamara. We usually report to you from NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. But today we come to you from Brooklyn, USA. Be well, take care, wear a mask. Josie, you have to you have to not do Legos in the room right now. I'm sorry. That that's the sound you're hearing out of. Right?
Josie, can you do the Legos in your room for just a few minutes? I love Thank Josie. You. Josie, you want to wave and say hi? I love you, Josie. You're awesome. <laughs> she says whatever. She, she, trust me. Whatever. Is your dad the coolest? No. Fair enough. <laughs> but you got to leave the room. You got to leave the room. Go, go. I'll be, I'll be done in a minute. Though. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>